Join over 5,000 attendees for the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, February 28th to 29th, 2024. Edward Snowden, Benedict Evans, Balaji Srinivasan, and over 150 others will hit the stage, joining the industry's most influential minds to explore and unveil the next wave of transformative AI technologies. Singapore will become a vibrant AI hub for a week from February 26th to March 3rd with over 150 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Visit www.realvision.com forward slash super AI for 20% off tickets with the code realvision. Are we experiencing immaculate disinflation? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Hi, Darius. Welcome back. Hey, hey thank you, Maggie. Just came back from my uh, honeymoon. It's a wonderful time in my life. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And we missed you while you were away, but I'm excited that you were able to unplug. And we were joking about it because, wow, like what a what a month November has been. I know you were working for part of it, but um, we had a lot of big moves in the markets, down S&P up 8%. I mean, the, the action was a little bit mixed today, the Dow up and, and we saw um, the NASDAQ down, but S&P um, and Dow up 8%, NASDAQ up 10% on the month. Ooh. Treasuries put in their best month since the 1980s. It's just been crazy. Does it feel like too much has happened too fast? Uh, it has happened too fast. Um, you know, I'll just kind of hop right into it. Um, uh, Brian, if you can just throw slide one on that screen there where we show our positioning model. Uh, one of the things we track, uh, we try to look at various indicators of positioning and sentiment to give us an idea of where the market might be headed over the very immediate term. And one of those um, uh, models that we use is the uh, spread between the AAII bulls bears um, surveys. Uh, right now, that spread is in the 91st percentile of all-time readings. You got the bulls in the 86th percentile, the bears in the 10th percentile. And so that 91st percentile suggests that discretionary investors are very overweight this market right now, and the market is, uh, has a decent probability of experiencing near-term correction. Now, is that the beginning of the end of this bull market? I think that's a different discussion we need to have. Yeah, absolutely. And you're echoing something uh, that that our guest yesterday said as well. You know, And, and by the way, this is normal, right? Consolidation, digestion, whatever you want to call it. When you've seen these massive moves, it would be surprising not to see some sort of backfilling and, and adjustment as we go here. So we'll talk about that longer view in a moment, but I want to sort of get through some of the stuff today as well, because we have the PCE uh, indicator out, the inflation reading that the Fed closely watches. That was in line with expectation. That's just one day after U.S. GDP figures were revised higher, 5.2% for Q3. Um, it's a good-looking mix. I mean, is it, this has everyone talking about that mythical, immaculate disinflation again. What are you, what are you seeing on the inflation front? Yeah, so we're, uh, the, everything you just said is very much contributing to this Goldilocks regime the markets have been in. Uh, Brian, if you throw up slide six in uh, today's uh, chart pack, uh, where we show uh, core PCE, the core PC deflator, the Fed's preferred uh, inflation metric, and that thing is exhibiting a textbook deceleration. Uh, there's nothing you can say about this statistic that suggests uh, we have problems ahead as it relates to the outlook for Fed policy. So uh, right now we have the three-month annualized rate of change of the core PC deflator uh, coming down. It decelerated uh, this month. It's 2.3%. Uh, it's 
that's lower than the six-month annualized uh, rate of change of 2.5%, which itself is lower than the year-over-year rate of change of 3.5%. So uh, they, they, you know, when you study the statistics, the probability of inflation continuing to come down on some of these more lagging measures is actually quite high. And, and, and as you can see, from a levels perspective, we're right around the level that the Fed would be comfortable with if you're talking about you know, somewhere between 2 and 2.5% two and core PC inflation. Uh, one other chart we show in this, in terms of this immaculate disinflation, it's not just core PCE. So if you throw up slide seven, Brian, uh, it's not just core PCE. The super core PCE deflator, which is something Jay Powell has explicitly called out in recent uh, recent months uh, as being one of these kind of core features, core drivers of the Fed's reaction function, uh, this is also exhibiting a textbook deceleration. So we have the three-month annualized rate of change of the super core PCE deflator, which is core services X housing, uh, that number uh, decelerated to 2.6% on a three-month SAR basis. Uh, the six-month annualized rate of change is 3%, whereas the year-over-year rate of change is 3.9%. So again, um, the probability, the likelihood that we continue to see downward momentum uh, in the months and quarters ahead in this particular statistic uh, is actually quite high. So that's obviously very positive for asset markets. Yeah. So what does that mean now as we look forward? Because that combination of slowing inflation but a still strong economy seems like it would be really positive but can it continue you know what what are we expecting as we move through this and i guess the really important question is what does it mean for consumers because they've been you know really out there spending but you know it's always hard to tell are they front loading it cuz the sales are so early i mean they were putting christmas trees up before halloween so <laughs> you know maybe maybe everybody did their christmas shopping and, and early i don't know you've done that out there if you're watching shame on you for doing that <laughs> exactly that's what i say too soon yeah. but um, but you know what what is does it look like we're in this kind of goldilocks did the fed get this land the soft landing that that's so elusive and so hard to do Great question, Maggie. So one of the things, uh, discussions I've been having with our institutional clients uh, here at 42 Macro is the concept of having to you know, arrest your brain or free your mind of being in the soft landing versus hard landing camp. And here's why. Asset markets can price in both of those things in succession. And right yeah. now, I do believe you know, one of the things we, uh, we kind of left with, uh, you know, when I left at, uh, at the beginning of the month to, to head for my honeymoon, uh, we left uh, you know, that, that week, you go back to the last week of October into that first week of November, uh, one of the things we explicitly called for a pain trade a higher in stocks and bonds, and one of those uh, core drivers of many, you had the QRA was a dovish uh, surprise, you had the Fed uh, surprised dovishly as well. But to me, the most important statistic that week was not the QRA, it was not the U.S. Treasury, it was not the Fed, it was the productivity number that we got. And the reason that productivity number, uh, you know, accelerating, I want to say to 2.2%, but that's going to be revised higher in the coming uh, days, productivity of trend pace gives us a sort of a clear runway to envision, you know, a, immaculate disinflation, a soft landing scenario, because ultimately what rising productivity does is it alleviates the pressure upon corporate margins that is currently causing them to, you know, kind of push through uh, elevated um, cost increases on the consumers. So to me, it's this market has, in my opinion, the market has it right. Uh, Brian, if you throw up uh, slide two, slide two is just, you know, kind of an ugly chart for TV, but I'll explain uh, really quickly how this model works. Uh, we have this uh, process, what we call our volatility adjusted momentum signal here at 42 Macro, and, and we use that model to determine what the, the momentum at a particular market indicators are and the probability of that momentum sustaining based on that volatility adjustment. And so we summarize each of the major markets across all the major asset classes on a daily basis, and we I mean, I sort of summarize that on slide three. 
uh, where we determine, you know, what the top-down market regime is. You know, what is the what is the market pricing in? Is it pricing in Goldilocks? Is it pricing in reflation? Is it pricing in inflation? Is it pricing in deflation? And we've recently transitioned, I want to say about a week and a half ago, to a Goldilocks regime. And mm. so our opinion that Goldilocks regime can be sustained if we don't slow to a significantly below trend pace in real GDP growth over the medium term. Because right now, if you look at the, the consensus estimates for growth over the next few quarters, you're talking about 1% uh, Q over Q uh, annualized here in Q4. And you're talking about basically close to you know 0 to 0.5% Q over Q SAR annualized um, in, in Q1 and Q2. You could easily, you know, trudge through all three of those quarters with, you know, somewhere between one and two to maybe even three percent real GDP growth. In our opinion, that would create rising expectations of a soft landing amongst investors. Now, a soft landing may not be the modal outcome, but the market can take this and run with it because positioning, uh, generally speaking, has been light all year. Yeah, and everyone was really bracing for that recession and, and or for the Fed to be aggressive. So this this does seem like it's a, a big turn in sentiment. How do we think the consumers, you and I have talked a lot about why people got the recession wrong, how they underestimated some of the things underpinning the consumer. If inflation's coming down, that's got to be a positive for consumers. We haven't seen mass layoffs. How How is the position, uh, you know, how is the consumer positioned heading into 2024? Well, it's it's an increasingly good, great question, Maggie. It's an increasingly complicated question, right? Um, you know, so let's take a step back. You know, if you're if you're a if you you've been spent most of this year as a bond bull or an equity bear, I'm probably one of the your least favorite people, right? Because you know, I'm probably the I'm the guy who created you, Maggie. You and I were here 16, <laughs> 17 months ago, banging the table yeah. resiliency uh, of the U.S. economy, and so we're here now. Uh, in terms of answering the question on the consumer, we obviously got uh, the personal consumption, the expenditures, and income data uh, this morning as well. Brian, if you throw up slide five, we can kind of quickly uh, roll through what's happening um, just on a, in terms of what's happening at the margins to the consumer. So uh, real PC growth slowed to 2.1%. Uh, that's a slightly below trend pace. Uh, it was mostly driven by a sharp deceleration in goods spending to 1.9%. We're tracking right at trend for uh, services consumption uh, at 2.1%. Uh, and then we bounced a little bit to 1.2% uh, quarter over quarter, uh, three month annualized in terms of um, in terms of real personal income. Uh, and so, you know, we're we're kind of steady as she goes as it relates to consumer spending. Now, there's a couple of things that give me uh, cause for concern. Uh, uh, not the least of which is we're seeing a pretty a significant reduction in fiscal support uh, for the consumer. Obviously, October marks the beginning of the student loan moratorium, but to me, it's not just you know the student loan moratorium. It's the broader, you know, sort of fiscal policy dynamics that we've observed throughout the year. You know, yet California not really paying taxes for for much of the year, and that really caused the budget deficit to expand by almost a trillion dollars on a year-over-year -year basis. You know, kind of towards the middle of this year, and that's exactly what we saw in terms of Q3 being so juiced to the upside uh, from a nominal real GDP perspective. The margin at the margins that that you know that fiscal impulse. Has waned substantially. I want to say uh, in the month of October, we were only up 255 billion year over year in terms of uh, in terms of that uh, year over year delta and nominal in the nominal budget deficit, and that's going to continue to come down uh, in the months and quarters ahead uh, once we get big states like California back online, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, you know, we got the cost of living increase next uh, in January as well. That's going to be significantly reduced relative to what it was in 2023. It's going to be somewhere around three percent versus nine percent uh, for this year. So, uh, when you you know kind of answering your question, putting a Tiffany bow on this, Maggie, the consumer is doing fine. As long as the labor market continues to hang in, which is a big if, and I think that's probably our next set of questions here. Yeah. Labor market continues to hang in, the consumer will be fine. 
Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. That is exactly what I was thinking about. And so was G. Blackburn, who asked, any concern about the trend in continuing claims? Oh, yeah, very much uh, concerned. Uh, so if you throw up slide eight, uh, Brian, uh, where we show uh, the, the, the three-month annualized rates of change uh, for the four-week moving average of initial jobless claims in the top panel. Uh, in the bottom panel, we show the three-month annualized rate of change for continuing claims uh, um, in the bottom panel. And what those dotted lines indicate uh, in both of those panels is the median value for the for the time series that's been observed at the start of recession. And so what we're trying to do is use the rate of change of initial jobless claims and continuing jobless claims to give us a near real-time indication of the economy potentially going into a recession. And right now, we have already crossed that median threshold for continuing claims, i.e. the continuing claims on a three-month annualized rate of change basis are up plus 24%. That plus 24% is above that threshold. So right now, you can make the case that continuing claims are, are signaling a, an elevated probability of a, of a near-term recession in the U.S. economy. Now, that's not what we're observing in initial claims at down minus 15%. So it's kind of a you know back and forth here. So you know on a, on a net basis, we would argue that there's a probably middling probability of a near-term recession in the U.S. economy, something to, to be concerned about, but not necessarily not anything to do as it relates to your portfolio. Um, if you throw slide uh, nine, Brian, up there, uh, we have a broader set of indicators that we call our FAB5 uh, recession signaling indicators here, 42 macro. And by and large, they're also signaling a uh, middling probability of a near-term recession in the U.S. economy. And so what we did is we did, did a big uh, statistical study, uh, you know, sort of uh, to, to understand which of the indicators give us the best leading, the leading edge on determining whether or not there's a, you know, a near-term recession developing uh, in the U.S. economy. That's the University of Michigan Employment Survey, the Conference Board's Labor Survey Differential. Uh, we have the continuing claims divided by the total labor force ratio, uh, cyclical unemployment and temporary unemployment. And right now, that continuing claims total labor force ratio and cyclical unemployment, the rate of change of cyclical unemployment, are both indicating a high probability of a near-term recession in the economy. Now, that's being countered by the Michigan survey and the Conference Board survey, both indicating a low probability of a near-term recession in the economy with uh, with cyclical unemployment, or sorry, with temporary unemployment kind of right at the line. So on a net basis, whether you look at the FAB5 recession signaling indicators or if you look at initial and continuing jobless claims, you could say that the probability of recession is rising, but it's not yet at a level that you need to be overly concerned about as market participants because of one thing we talked about in recent programs, Maggie, is that the market is not particularly forward-looking when it comes to recession. The market yeah. tends to peak you know, pretty close to uh, the breakout in jobless claims, the breakdown in total employment. Does it matter what kind of recession we have too, Darius? Because, you know, there's a big difference between a really deep, painful recession and a shallow one that, or a rolling one. We've got all these sort of scenarios that you could argue, you know, that maybe maybe we've seen some weakness already in some areas, but, you know, strength in others. And so it, it, how much does that matter in terms of, you know, the market? Yeah, so uh, we've done this, we've performed a statistical analysis to answer that question as well. Uh, 42 macro, uh, and one of the things we found is that the 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 in terms of the market response to a a recession, which is what we call a phase two credit cycle downturn, uh, it's not necessarily correlated to the depth of recession or the degradation in the labor force or the you know the employment um, the labor market. It's actually mostly correlated to the starting valuation uh, that you know that the market is at you know uh, entering that that downturn. 
recall that, you know, for example, uh, we had a 50% drawdown in, in the S&P, and I want to say 80-90% drawdown in the NASDAQ uh, throughout the 2001 recession, which was actually the shallowest recession in U.S. history. I think it was like 30 basis points peak the trough uh, in terms of GDP. Uh, and so, you know, it's not about, you know, the, the actual outcome. It's about you know, the, 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 the behavioral dynamics that are, so, that are associated with the positioning cycle and the valuation cycle leading into the downturn. Uh, you know, I think, again, you know, investors need to be a lot more humble after 2023. And, when, you know, this is a year where folks got blown up, uh, longing bonds and shorting stocks all year. And so I think a lot of investors would do well if they're, you know, trying to improve themselves and improve their process to go back to the drawing board and just be a lot more, you know, I don't know, water when it comes to investing in financial markets. You don't have to be in the hard landing camp or the soft landing yeah. camp. You can be in both camps. Right yeah. now, you're in the soft landing camp because our model is saying we're in Goldilocks. And until the model says we're no longer in Goldilocks, we will remain in the soft landing camp. And it could easily pivot to a hard landing in, in, in the coming weeks and months. Right. Don't get locked into your into your uh, narrative uh, because yeah. it changes quickly. Mm -hmm. um, Doug asking a good question. What's causing the productivity to trend higher? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, to answer that question would require a lot of hubris because economists have no idea what drives right. activity. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just this magical thing that that we plug into our models and it ultimately hope and and for those who are, you know, tend to be permeables on Wall Street, you just you just plug a value at two and just keep it moving. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's how that process works. So, uh, Doug, but I wish I could answer your question. It's a great question, Doug. And I think it does. I mean, we tend to think these central bankers are all knowing. I mean, people yeah. argue they also really don't understand the inflation dynamic completely. But I would think with productivity, there's a lot happening with technology that we're just, it's very hard to capture. We're just not sure, um, you know, what's driving that. But I, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who are trying to figure it out, Doug, and taking a good look at AI and some of these other things to see if they're contributing. Um, one, before, before we move off productivity, one thing I will say is, is you know, the, the trend, the long run trends in productivity have been remarkably stable in the U.S. economy. Whether you look at the 10-year, uh, the trailing 10-year mean is somewhere around 1.4%. Uh, the trailing 20-year mean is somewhere around 1.6%. And the trailing 30-year mean is somewhere around 1.9%. So basically, you take three of those three means, your median is somewhere around 1.6% in terms of productivity growth in the U.S. economy. And this is over the last 30 years. We've had a lot of cool stuff come out in the last 30 years. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking to you via Zoom. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like all that stuff was built in the last 30 years. And so, uh, you know, I think the, the expectation that AI is going to create this sort of productivity boom that was, you know, significantly, you know, more productive than, I don't know, this thing called the internet or, you know, personal computers. To me, I think it's a, it's a lot of Pollyannish belief there, but that doesn't that won't stop the market from pricing it in as long as we remain in this Goldilocks regime. And it doesn't and it mean does, that it's not going not to going increase productivity. It's just that we see this consistently with waves yeah. when it comes to technology. Totally. Um, and this is just the latest. Uh, Mark has an interesting question. And I, uh, Dale, does this mean transitory Goldilocks is no longer your base case in early 24? Can it come back? What would be the indicators? Weaker demand? No, no. Goldilocks is very much our base case. Uh, yeah, that's why I was. It was interesting. I wasn't. I'm not sure what what Mark was referring to, but it sounds like you are saying that we're in transitory Goldilocks, and we're going to stay there until something your indicators tell you otherwise. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's 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 really about the market. You know, there, there's a terminal destination to transitory Goldilocks, right? Eventually, the economy is going to be too slow for the earnings outlook to support the current, you know, pretty rosy uh, earnings outlook out there. But as long as economy is slowing to an at trend or only slightly below trend pace, 
asset markets can do just fine in that scenario because as we've seen, the market is very comfortable taking expectations of policy rate uh, uh, you know, cuts, policy rate cuts and in, in, in running with that. And this is a Federal Reserve that I, I wanna say, I think we talked about this the last time I was on. This is a Federal Reserve that has an asymmetrically dovish reaction function. This is a Federal Reserve that does not want to over tighten the economy into a recession, but is totally fine doing what it, it can to prevent uh, you know, uh, or sorry, do, yeah. do what it can to prevent uh, uh, really negative outcomes. And obviously that in our opinion, that in of itself is a is a positive catalyst uh, for asset markets, a positive underlying fundamental that in my opinion is likely to suck in some flows. And, you know, I throw a couple statistics at you. Uh, you know, we've obviously had this very positive no, month of November. It's, I think it's like the fifth or sixth best November in the history of the S&P 500. Right, so like maybe I should go on honeymoons more often, I guess. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> what people think. <laughs> you know, so it's you know when you when you go back and you sort of you know apply uh, appropriate filters uh, and apply some conditional analysis to you know seasonality, what we find is that you know December's you know pretty decent month. Uh, whenever you have you know uh, a November that's uh, uh, it's increased uh, on par with or greater than the current increase that we are experiencing here in November, and then January tends to be an extremely positive month. Like one, you know, extremely. I want to say the median uh, return for those for that for that sample of of, of six is is about plus five percent uh, in January and about one and a half percent in December. So you know, it's not to say that the market's going to you know go up every single day between now and then, but it is to say that until we you know see data that can really uh, change the market's mind about immaculate disinflation, um, particularly on the productivity side. And perhaps until we get into late uh, January, and we may potentially see data from the Treasury Department in terms of the updated quarterly funding announcement, um, you know that may change the outlook for fiscal uh, the, the the fiscal supply trajectory. In our opinion, there's not a lot of negative catalyst between now and let's call it the end of January. And so, just getting between now and then, I think if you're bearish, you you know you need you're going to need a lot more than what I think the current market narratives are out there. Uh, so speaking of the Fed, we have a Fed meeting in December. Couple of weeks. Yeah. What do you anticipate in terms of their messaging? I mean, it seems like given the data coming out, they'll be on hold. But do you think Jay Powell's worried about some of the market gains that we've seen? Will he want to temper that at all? How do you see that playing out? Uh, no, I, I think increasingly, uh, just going back to those original charts we showed, you could throw them back on the screen, Brian, slide six and slide seven, just going back to the, where the discussion started, they are at the margins achieving their inflation outcomes. They have not achieved their inflation outcomes, but we are very much making progress towards that outcome from their perspective. And not only are we making progress towards that outcome from their perspective, they're going to have to revise down their 2022 inflation projections, which may, just from a base effect perspective, cause them to revise down uh, their 24 and 25 uh, inflation projections in terms of the how quickly we are likely to, you know, quote unquote, <laughs> arrive back at the destination, this, this perfect destination of right around 2% of core PC inflation. Now, we take offense to that if the economy does not go into recession at any point in time next year, because it's very unlikely we're going to see that last mile of, of disinflation achieved, let's say going from three to two, in our opinion, or three and a half to two and a half, in our opinion, it's gonna be quite difficult, but as long as we can, and, and staying at that level, but as long as we can kind of you know convince ourselves as market participants, and more importantly, convince ourselves as policymakers that we are well on track to that, they're going to high five each other and 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 you know sing kumbaya because what they're doing is working. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. So the market is thinking uh, Fed rate cuts mid-year, maybe somewhere around mid-year. 
Others like Bill Ackman say, no way, they're going to be sooner. Um, how are you feeling about the how the market's positioned for Fed rate hikes? And someone was asking, do you worry that there could be um, a second wave of inflation? Are we getting too, are we, are we sort of building in those uh, Fed rate cuts too soon? Yes, but it doesn't mean that it has to unwind now. That's sort of the answer to that question. Uh, you know, I don't know that we know enough as investors whether or not the recession is, you know, the highest probability outcome. We talked about how the probability has risen from a low probability to a middling probability in recent weeks, just based on the evolution of the data. And if that, you know, continues to evolve in a way that is deleterious for the outlook for the economy, i.e., we now have a high probability of a near-term recession, then all bets are off, right? You know, we're going to continue to see more rate cuts priced into into the forward outlook into the into the curve. You know, the, the Fed on, on on a median basis cuts rates by somewhere, you know, somewhere on the order of 375 to 400 basis points uh, in a recession. And in recessions that are caused by their policy tightening, they tend to cut by 475 to 500 basis points uh, in a recession. So if there is a recession outcome, the bond market is not at all positioned for that right now. And so the, the, the one outcome you have to be concerned about as an investor is an outcome where, you know, both growth and inflation stay well above trend and you start to see a reacceleration in inflation. But right now, it's just not in the data. You know, yeah. we, we could be coming the data in the coming days and weeks, but I don't think any of us has any real ability to forecast that given how dynamic the, the, the changes and all the movement underneath the hood has been um, in, in some of these inflation statistics. I've been doing this for a long time. I think I'm one of the world's best econometricians. And in forecasting inflation, uh, no one's gotten inflation right. People have gotten inflation directionally right just by saying, I think inflation is going to go higher and go lower. Yeah. But nobody is forecasting this with any precision right now. So we all need to be humble. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, you know, deep in the Fed papers, they also say that, you know, it, for, for a very long time, it's, yeah. as we mentioned earlier, extremely difficult to, to get to nail that. There's a lot we don't understand about inflation dynamics, probably because that's to do with human beings and psychology. Um, it, Ralph asking- not a lot of data to now cast, right? It would be yeah. a lot easier if we could now cast it, but uh, it's a monthly statistic. There's not a lot of weekly data or daily data that can give you an indication on how something like super core PC is going to evolve. And right. so that's part of the issue as well. Right, in real time. Uh, Ralph asking, does Darius have a view on DXY? Yeah, no. we've been quite bearish. Uh, we've been very bearish on the dollar since the beginning of the month. I mean, in, in conjunction with making a call that, hey, soft landing is, you know, the market is going to run away with the soft landing trade, which is the call we made at the beginning of the month. Uh, dollar is a clear and obvious sell in that, in that, in that scenario. And, and one thing that's given me confidence that this dollar uh, a move can be maintained, or is it, there's a few things giving me confidence that this dollar uh, a move down can be maintained. But I'd say one of them is the sort of setup that you know, we have in terms of U.S. growth relative to Europe. Right now, if you look forward in time, you know, right now, the U.S. economy on a, on, a, on a trending basis has by far the best trend of positive economic surprises in the world. Whereas the Europe, Europe you know, the, the home, the Euro, the Euro area has the, the, the trend of the worst and the most negative economic surprises in the world. And by the way, has this very tepid uh, fork, uh, growth uh, trajectory as it relates to, you know, uh, Wall Street economist consensus. All we have to do is Europe not fall off the face of the earth over the next few months and actually have, you know, some stability and, 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 certain, and, and, and have this sort of global soft landing, global, you know, stability narrative really start to take hold. And you could easily see uh, the currency market really start to, to punish the dollar, uh, in our opinion. And that's exactly what we have seen. And it's something that could continue. And oh, by the way, if that continues, something we haven't talked about, I'm sure Raul talked about it earlier today uh, in, in, in his, in, in his uh, program, we have seen, we observed a, a positive inflection 
uh, in the global liquidity impulse, at least according to our model, our global liquidity proxy. And as long as that continues higher, you're going to continue to get reflexive, positive results on a relative and absolute basis in terms of risk assets versus defensive assets. And these positive results in markets are going to cause currency market participants to continue to sell the dollar, to continue to lever up, and to continue to take on risk. And I think at the margin, that, that's that's exactly what should be happening in a Goldilocks regime. Yeah. Lena asked a great question. We've been looking at too. Why is volatility so low? The VIX is at 12 something. Well, this is a historic, uh, seasonally, this is just a weak period for volatility normally in the year. I mean, November, December tend to be very positive months uh, for the market. But don't forget, volatility is also low because it's being driven by fundamentals. You know, again, we, we the, a lot of the things that plague the market throughout the summer as it relates to the reduction uh, in the U.S. and global liquidity, uh, as it relates to, you know, other things like inflation actually having some of a, of a hiccup to the upside. I go back to, you know, the July, August reports, et cetera, et cetera. Those kinds of things were, 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 were negatives. Now you look forward and going back to, again, we, we took the BLJ off the table in terms of incremental tightening. We got the productivity boost. We got the uh, the QRA surprise. We got the Fed basically confirming that it's out of the way. And you know we also got inflation data that's suggesting that you know the Fed should be out of the way for good. It's all positive. You know, now again, the market has moved you know, plus 10% in S&P terms or 9% in S&P terms in November. So we are due for a correction and a pullback. But in our opinion, that dip is very likely to be bought until we start to get more meaningful evidence that supports a near-term recession in the economy. In our opinion, uh, we have not received that evidence. Uh, a question about the, you, I think we briefly mentioned this was a while, we were talking about issuance a lot as such a, such a weight on the bond market. Uh, what's your take on Yellen apparently reducing the issuance of longer treasuries? Could this work over the medium term to keep rates lower? Yeah, Yellen's been nailing it. I've been so applauding, applauding her, her fiscal policy for, for several months now. Um, so if you think about this in terms of, you know, so the Fed, the, the Treasury has several options, obviously, to to, um, to, to to finance the U.S. government, to capitalize the U.S. government. And I think Yellen is, is appropriately, based on the trends in inflation, taking the easy way out. And, and, and again, I'm celebrating that because you should be taking the easy way out. If you look at, um, you know, on a trailing 12-month basis, T-bills uh, as a ratio of their net marketable borrowing is going to be traffic trending at somewhere around 70-ish percent uh, all the way through Q1 of 2024, at least according to the most recent uh, uh, QRA. And so that means obviously coupons are somewhere in the kind of the 25 to 30% range uh, as it relates to um, as it relates to uh, uh, net marketable borrowing. And, and if you look at it on a nominal basis, we're talking about uh, if you want to isolate bonds. So, so coupons obviously are any you know debt beyond a T-bill all the way through the 30-year the treasury. And so if you want to isolate bonds, which are 10-year plus uh, uh, d uh, d um, maturities, you know, we're somewhere around 150, 160 billion uh, in the in the quarters uh, in Q4 here and in Q1 of 2024. You know, those numbers are you know 250 ish. You know, going back a couple of years ago, and so we're well south of the kind of bond issuance that could cause a lot of duration uh, consternation in the market. And this is this is smart policy. Don't forget, there's about you know 800, 900 billion dollars of, of excess of, of demand for T bills sitting there in the reverse repo facility balance. And until that thing gets zero, I would say Yellen should be continuing on with this policy. I'm going to squeeze one more in for John uh, Kitcher. How long do you expect the positive liquidity to last? That is a very loaded question. Uh, right now, the liquidity, positive liquidity uh, dynamics are being driven mostly by the private sector. And so we run a lot of statistical analysis to help uh, investors understand what actually 
drives liquidity so we can actually forecast liquidity and not just tweet about it you know when it's happening because uh, that's not you, you can't make money doing that the latter one and so in terms of um, in terms of what's actually driving this inflection in liquidity it's again being driven by the private sector the private sector commercial banks non-bank market participants insurers you know folks who create money uh, in the real economy or in the financial economy either way it doesn't make a difference you know the money always finds its way uh, into the stock market into Bitcoin et cetera et cetera. And so right now, this breakdown that we've seen in bond market volatility, the breakdown that we've seen in the dollar, breakdown we've seen in other measures of volatility, crude oil, all these things are inversely correlated. They're, they're counter-cyclical drivers of, of, of private sector liquidity. Now, it's very unstable. You know, if you, you the liquidity that most people on finance Twitter, you know, are concerned about or finance podcasts, et cetera, are concerned about the more stable liquidity that tends to come from central banks. You know, when central banks are actively pursuing large-scale asset purchase programs or you know quantitative easing, et cetera, we are not there yet from the perspective of our global liquidity model. Um, we're not seeing enough degradation in you know the the, the 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 growth cycles and the inflation cycles in the key drivers of that global liquidity proxy in terms of those economies, you know, China, U.S., et cetera. We're not seeing enough degradation there to support central banks actively supplying on a, on, a, on a proactive basis a sustained you know trend higher in global liquidity. But that doesn't mean you can't see a sustained trend higher in global liquidity anyway, because again, as long as the private sector has animal spirits and those animal spirits are being in, you know, inflamed and, and engrossed by you know, things like a declining dollar, things like declining bond market volatility, it could be off to the races. Fantastic answer. Thank you so much for that, Darius, um, uh, for, for what was. And thank you, John, for that really smart question. Um, Darius, everyone loving your suit and tie. I got to tell you, you, get a lot of comments about that. Appreciate it. I used <laughs> to be a sharp. handsome guy. He, he just... <laughs> Hinge's most eligible 2015. Look it up. <laughs> I, I, love it. Now, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, no, it's great to catch up and get your thoughts after what has been an incredible month in the markets. And it sounds like we've got a lot more action ahead. So thank you for that, Darius. We will see you again soon. Um, wanted to leave you all with a little something today. Of course, yesterday we lost Charlie Munger, a huge name in finance. Today, another towering figure, Henry Kissinger. Um, he was left an imprint on. On, um, on international politics uh, for decades, a polarizing figure for some, but right up until the end, he was researching and talking about weighing in on current events, including artificial intelligence, which he talked about right here on Real Vision. If you are not a full member, come join our community because you're missing out on some great conversations. We're going to leave you with a little clip from Mr. Kissinger himself. Take care, everybody. Uh in order to handle this well, you need technology and vision. And when you look at the Enlightenment, there were extraordinary technological developments then in terms of what was known like the printing press which changed communications among people by making the transportation or the creation of ideas or the perpetuation of ideas relatively simple. But side by side with that, you had a philosopher group of extraordinary distinction that grew out of the medieval religiously based period. And these philosophers 
either challenge the existing system or they try to find a compromise or a solution to uplift it. And so for about 300 years, Europe had the good fortune through combat between these two groups and then cooperation between these two groups to evolve their thinking. It was not an easy process because not easy is an understatement. There was a 30-year war that devastated Europe. But out of that war emerged such concepts as sovereignty and some concepts of international principles and law that then for 300 years permitted the evolution of both fields and which then with Einstein and the uncertainty principles led to some limits, some enormous discoveries, but also some, some limits. But we don't have the philosophers. Our technicians understand so much more than we do as statesmen and as thinkers. And they are producing things like the possibility of dialogue with machines, which they're doing right now and successfully in terms of that task. So, for that world, we have no great philosophers. And we, when we look at our educational systems, they are much more concerned with teaching how to survive, to get ahead in that short-term world than reflections about the decisions that children and grandchildren will have to make. So that is an unprecedented cha challenge for humanity. And as we said before, there are differences in cultural perception to begin with. So that even just trying to understand these things in a non-competitive way will require huge efforts. Uh, so we need to generate leaders who understand this and followers who feel the need for this. And to match this will be a great task, especially for democratic countries and for the future of democracy. Join over 5,000 attendees for the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, February 28th to 29th, 2024. Edward Snowden, Benedict Evans, 
Balaji Srinivasan, and over 150 others will hit the stage, joining the industry's most influential minds to explore and unveil the next wave of transformative AI technologies. Singapore will become a vibrant AI hub for a week from February 26th to March 3rd, with over 150 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Visit www.realvision.com forward slash super AI for 20% off tickets with the code realvision.